I think leaders and managers are different. I think good leaders are also effective managers. And it's the inspiration piece, which is, is essential. And I look back over my series of managers and bosses over, over 30 years. The inspirational ones always stand out. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, sponsored by AWS Energy. Before I introduce this week's guest, of course, I'm going to ask you to leave me a review. I love reading them to you guys, and I appreciate the feedback. So give you a shout out if you leave me a review in iTunes. All right. I am sitting here this afternoon with Barry Glickman, president of Surface Technologies. How are you this afternoon, Barry? I'm very well, thank you. All right, Barry, let's talk about how you got started in the oil and gas industry. I actually got started in the energy industry coming out of business school. So in the early 90s, I went into management consulting and wound it up focusing on power generation and gas debundling and mm-hmm. moved from there into power and did that for between 15 and 20 years and then wound up at FMC Technologies in an energy infrastructure and from there moved into subsea. So, and then from subsea, subsequently moved into Technip FMC's surface group. So it's, it's less of a oil and gas career, but much mm-hmm. more of an energy career. Right, right, right. So I don't know if that spoils the story or not. So let's talk about some of the issues and challenges you've had to go through in your career. So I, I you know, I guess it's maybe we start, we start current and work backwards. Okay. Because certainly it's a challenging environment. I cringe every time I hear the word unprecedented these days because it, it's so trite, but it, mm-hmm. it's certainly a exceptionally challenging time, both from a pandemic perspective as well as a hydrocarbon demand destruction perspective overlaid, I think, with a long-term challenge to the oil and gas industry around greenhouse gas intensity. Mm-hmm. securing a place in, in the long-term energy mix. So I think if I look back at, at all points of my career, I'd be hard-pressed to think of a more challenging time. The, right. the, the, the closest, I'd say, would be 08, 09, where, yeah. where the financial crisis was the, was the existential threat and this, the same type of questions. How do you survive and how do you reinvent and how do you see the light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah. Do you see light at the end of the tunnel? Absolutely. Good. Absolutely. So we, we as Technip FMC, I want to say about two years ago now, asked ourselves a series of, I will call it 30-year type questions, largely around where oil and gas would be 
way out into the future? And could we convince ourselves that there is a long-term hydrocarbon demand? And we absolutely concluded there is. And we concluded that there would be a peak demand for oil. There would be a peak demand for natural gas that would occur at a later date. But there would be a very, very long demand tail for hydrocarbons. So once we got past that point, it was thinking about how do we position the company at various points in time, but it wasn't around how do we, how do we liquidate the company or, or how do we respond to hydrocarbons going away tomorrow? So I feel the same way now. There's been a dramatic destruction of particular oil demand over the last six months. Oh, man. Yeah. I know. (laughs) Painfully so. And the question I get asked a lot is, is peak demand now in our rear view? And I don't believe so. So I, I, I think by late 21 into 22, we've recovered the demand that's been destroyed. We get back onto a path of a very low demand growth that takes us into the early 2030s. And then there's a tipping point, but the tipping point takes us down a very gentle curve beyond 2030, which was a, a horrifically long answer to your question. Yes, there's light at the end of the tunnel. No, I, what the question was. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's exactly what I wanted. I, you know, that's, that's what yeah, this is about. I think if you're in the oil and gas industry today, you have to be asking yourself these questions. It's how do you get? Well, there's no way around it, really. I mean, you, you you've got a plan. You've got to ask these questions. You can't just just go, ah, well, let's just keep doing what we're doing. Exactly. But the questions segment, I think, naturally into what do we need to do to get through the here and now, and then wh- where do we want to be as an industry? Where do we want to be as a company in the decades that follow? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's what everybody's up against right now. So, all right, so we're moving back further than the financial crisis back in '08. Yeah, remind me the the question was challenges, challenges and issues. You know, if I go way back to the to my start in energy, the fundamental question was, what does the industry look like post deregulation? We started to answer that question in gas transmission, and then within the U.S very much had to answer that question within the world of electric utilities. I think if we, if I reflect back what we thought 25 years ago and the, the pace of change, it's, it's happened much, much slower than we would have or did forecast back then, which probably has some lessons learned for how the oil and gas industry will evolve over the next decades. Right, right. And you were you were in energy after the first bust, right? I, I've, stopped, did you, I've been in the industry long enough to stop counting busts. <laughs> <laughs> That's I've fair. Enough, I've been in enough meetings where people will go around the table and, you know, this is my seventh boom bust. This is my fifth. It's, I think anybody who's been in the industry long enough understands it's very cyclical and part of being a good steward and an effective leader is planning through the cycles. 
So yeah, I've, yeah. I've, been, I've been through enough of them. Yeah. So and of course you're probably never surprised, but I mean, if you look at everything, we, we never really recover from the last one and then COVID happened. So no, if someone had said to me, imagine a world where passenger miles, you know, airline miles would drop to less than 10% of the current level. There's no way I would have forecasted that. I would have definitely lost money. Yeah, I probably I probably couldn't even imagine what would have caused that. I mean, coming coming through post 9/11, I don't have the stats in front of me, but the demand destruction post 9/11 in air traffic is nowhere near what we're seeing now. So, anybody who says they planned on this level of demand destruction is either completely full of it or seer-like. You know, uh, I don't put myself in either of those categories or we're, we're doing the best we can to be thoughtful, given the circumstances we are, and, and make reasonable assumptions about the pace of recovery. Yeah. Yeah. So if you had a piece of advice to give our audience, what would it be? So maybe if I, it, it's, it's personal, but if I reflect back on sort of profound bosses that I've had in my career and, and lessons that have stuck with me over over decades i kind of go back to i had a series of bosses in the God, late 80s early 90s and they said a version of your job is always to have an opinion and you have to absolutely be willing to be convinced that your opinion is wrong but the the mortal sin is not to have a view so I think Interesting. I think that's and as I work with people coming into the industry today, you have to have a working hypothesis, and you have to be thoughtful and rigorous in your thought process. I believe X, which implies that I believe A, B, and C. But if you don't have a if you don't have a starting point where you have no belief, you're not going to be an effective manager. You're not going to be an inspirational leader. It works for me, but the advice was always have an opinion. Always have an opinion. Now, the, the subsequent advice, and I got this from, from my father. So in my household, we would debate everything and we would debate loudly. And we used to have, and that was, that was the sport in my household. And we had a couple of cardinal rules. And one of them was, thou shalt not elevate one's opinion to fact. Ah, uh, so I think that's back to the, you have to have an opinion, but you have to recognize just, just no matter how strongly held your opinion is, you don't get to elevate it to a fact. Yeah. Can you, can you let everybody else on social media know that? Because that seems to be a thing. <laughs> it's painful for me because not only do people elevate their opinions to facts, there's, there seems to be a a belief now that you can pick and choose what facts you want to believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, an oxy, which is just an oxymoron around facts, but I think it's, you want to have the debate. You want to have the, a lively exchange of ideas, but you can't, you can't conflate opinion to fact. And the other cardinal rule in, in, in our house growing up was you can't make up facts. Right. Which unfortunately, when I, I'm old enough that I, I grew up in a, in a pre Google world where you had actually spent some effort to go look up facts. Now it's there, there's zero excuse for making up facts because you can 
you can go online and in seconds basically answer any factual question. Yeah, yeah. But then you have fact checkers also. <laughs> you have fact checkers because, again, because people are making up facts. That's really scary to think about, isn't it? It is. And, you know, I don't want to be one of those guys who sits at the at the end of the bar and and moans about the, the state of the world. But reasonable people can have passionate disagreement about opinions. And we can absolutely have great intellectual debate without making up facts. It's not a prerequisite. And my feeling about the pandemic is we have too many people that, that, that want to make up facts. And we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't confuse science with politics. And we absolutely shouldn't, we shouldn't confuse opinion with facts. So personal view, the sooner we get past that point of ineffective discourse, the better, the better off we're all going to be. The better off the, the country will be, the better off the industry will be. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And again, it, it doesn't mean you can't have passionate debate and, and it doesn't mean we're all going to believe the same thing. Well, that's, I guess I feel like the debate is not to change someone else's mind. It's to just go, hey, this is my point of view. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think to me, and, and again, this is, this is part of my upbringing, you know, the, the sport is, can I convince someone to change their point of view? Can I, right. can, yeah. can I bring some new information or a new way of thinking or synthesize data in some way that someone hasn't thought of? But to be able to convince someone, you have to be able to be convinced to change your mind. Right. Have an open mind about it. Yeah, certainly. So anyway, I, I absolutely lost the thread of the question before, <laughs> before I went off on that tangent of what's wrong with the world today. <laughs> I'm sorry. I kind of brought it out of you. <laughs> this is what this world has come to. I'm hugely hopeful of the world. I'm hugely hopeful of our industry. I have three daughters, my wife and I have three daughters, hopeful of their futures and the way they can process information and the way they optimistically view the future and the way they view their role in shaping the world. Back, back to your initial question on, is there light at the end of the tunnel? As long as we have people that behave and believe as they do, plenty of light at the end of the tunnel. So what book influenced you the most and why? Can I give you a couple of answers? Yeah, absolutely. So I read a fair number of business books. Mm -hmm. And I have to confess, not many of them stick with me long term. Yeah, I understand. I'm right there with you. Yeah, but but one that, that has is probably, I'm probably going to get the title exactly wrong, but it was something like First Break All the Rules. And it, and it was given to me by the head of HR of a business I was with quite some time ago. And the, the premise was your job as a manager of people essentially is not to fix people. Your job as a manager is to find roles that accentuate the strengths that your people bring. Oh, that sounds like a good one. It was, and, and I probably just saved you 300 pages, but it, it's, a, it's a good quick read, but that's the premise, and it resonated well. So 
it got me away from thinking about people management as how do we create well-rounded managers where everybody is a little bit good at everything to how do I create teams where I have spikes. So people who have extreme strength in one or two areas, how do I, as a manager, get people into the right roles where they will thrive because the role requires the competency where they have a spike. And then more broadly, how do I assemble a team where the, the spikes across the team accentuate the strength of the team? So every, every time I, I sit down and do a, a review with someone or a, or a mentoring engagement or think about the composition of the team, I have that book in the back of my head. If I can give you another one, a, a, mm-hmm. a more recent book, and, and I can't give you the, the full title, but the short version is The Subtle Act of Not Giving. And if you don't know what the book is, go online. It's, I like it because it, it teaches a lesson which I find myself frequently reminding myself of. And, and the lesson of the book is not to not, to not care but to select the things that you want to care about. Okay. And the premise of the book is you have a finite amount of mental energy. Don't waste it. That's true. And it's, you know, my, my wife gave me the first copy and then I bought another copy for myself so I could, I could keep one at home and one at work. I've given copies to other people. So it's a, it's a simple message and, and the book is a light read, but it's, it's a great way to, when I find myself devoting mental energy to things that in the scheme of, of the business don't matter, pull myself back and make more conscious decisions about how to invest my mental energy. Excellent. You got any more? You know, just because we were talking about it, one of, my, one of my favorite recent books is called Factfulness. This is a book that several people recommended it to me, but this is the one that, that Bill Gates several years ago gave a copy to, I believe, every college graduate, every every senior graduating in a given year. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, he has that money, so. Yeah. And it's a, it's a great book around basically having an objective view of the state of the world and a fact-based view. And the premise of the book is when you take a fact-based view of the world, you obviously recognize there are huge and meaningfully consequential issues to solve, but the world is not as bad as you might think it is. So there's, a, there's an inspirational tone to the book, as well as a reminder to tie your thinking to data, Gotcha. which, which is another book that... that sits on my desk that periodically I flip myself. I find myself referring to it. And the, and the book starts with a 10 question quiz. Oh, cool. I like stuff like that. Yeah. Which I won't tell you what I got on it, but it was, certainly wasn't 10. <laughs> I'm going to give you one more book. Just okay. Yeah. 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 Because there's, there's a chance my youngest daughter will, will listen to this. Uh-huh. Actually, hope, maybe my three daughters would listen to this, but my youngest daughter gave me a book recently called The Language of Kindness which was written by a UK nurse. And it, and it reflects on her 
20 plus year career in nursing. Yeah, you definitely have to have some kindness to do that job. You know, and it's a... And patience. It's a book that you you bounce between despair and inspiration, but it's another wonderful reminder of kindness. And my oldest daughter gave me a book called Farm City, which she's been after me to read for years and years. So one of the benefits of being in lockdown is I got to catch up on quite a bit of reading. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and it's a definitely. great and it's a great book around sustainability and personal engagement. So, so, the, so those are for people who have some time on their hand that are looking for non-business books that that have relevant messages. Those, mm-hmm. those are two good ones. Great, yeah, and I'll, I've actually typed them out as you told me. So we'll put them on a list of books of what everybody gives me every interview. So I'm not. The author of any, or publisher, or agent, I get no commission. <laughs> These are just books. <laughs> good deal, good deal. So, leaving the book space, what's your most used business tool? So, this is maybe maybe a goofy answer, but I would say my feet. No, that's a good answer. Can you elaborate a little more? No. I'm- <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. I think we'll that's, just, that's a, we'll that's a fair answer. I'll we'll just leave it as, as cryptic. <laughs> I think everybody, certainly by the time you get to, I'm in my, my early 50s, by, by the time you get to my age, you have to have a clear view of what you're good at, what you're not good at, how you learn, how you need to absorb information what inspires you, what helps you inspire others. So what I've learned over time is my ability to understand markets, understand customers, understand technology requires me to see and touch. I'm a frustrated engineer. I I can't look at a drawing or a schematic or a one line and and get it. I have to, I have to walk and see and be able to circle. That's sort of thought one. Thought two is I thrive on the, on the personal interaction. So it's getting up from my desk, getting into other people's offices, getting out of the office and, and into the field, walking factory floors, is energizing for me and the and the interactions are are how I learn and how I process and and how I synthesize information kind of goes back to jumping in with both feet yeah or you know so you, there's you know there's obviously a balance so I also le- learned long ago that you can't fill your days with meetings and get anything done some someone taught me 20, 25 years ago that you need to schedule time on your calendar to think. No, I agree with that. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of people I know that live directly out of their calendar. I'm one of those people or have become one of those people. And yeah, you just, you've got to put a, you know, aside time for yourself to. Absolutely. Or, or it gets filled up and and it's back to, you know, Back to that concept of how do you want to expend mental energy, and and if you don't if you don't have some discipline around reflection, 
it won't get done. Right. Yeah, I, I totally get it. You know, I even have to put it in my calendar to respond to emails or it just doesn't get done. So, well, well that's good because most people make responding to emails, I think, the primary purpose of their existence. Oh, I know. <laughs> so, you know back, back I have I- like, I knocked out, I think, 1,200 emails out of my inbox last week because I got a new computer and I was just. I guess because I it's new that I want to use it. So, I mean, I'm down to like 3,500. So who's your most respected competitor? You know, so in my part of the oil and gas space, we've got Schlumberger. We have Baker. We have Cactus. We've got Weatherford and Oceaneering. I mean, NOV, there's... Literally dozens, and I don't have I don't have one where I hold them up as the model, but I hold up specific ones as the model for outstanding competency in given areas. And I won't pair them up for you, but when I when I run down my list and I think about what do I want to create as a business, so I've got. One or two competitors where I say for service excellence, that's my role model. I've got one or two for digital and how to make information accessible to operators and meaningful. There's a couple of competitors that do that exceptionally well. There's a couple that have solved low-cost supply chain and operational excellence where I look at them and say there's lessons learned. So it's right. You know, so it's really for, from from not from each, but from a a relatively broad range of competitors. I pick and choose, and when when I lay out a strategy or or when when my staff and I lay out a set of operational priorities, mm-hmm. we've got a, a handful of competitors we look at and say, all right, we need to do X more like competitor Y. And I think that's healthy. At every point in my career, I've had a group of competitors where I've done the same. And it, it helps you recognize that there's others out there that are better in certain things. And it absolutely reinforces the fact that you don't have to invent everything yourself. That's true. That's true. And it, you know, it keeps a good organizational edge. So, you know, businesses are, are very much like sharks. It's, you know, if, you, if you're not swimming, if you're not swimming, you're not doing well. And if you're not swimming upstream, you're not improving. Yeah. And don't get eaten. So I think I just, I think I just mix my, my salmon and shark metaphors, but <laughs> hopefully, you know, there's not too many marine biologists listening to your podcast and, and we'll be able to distill the point I was trying to make. (laughs) What would you say is your most important lesson learned? So in business, I'd say the the most important lesson I've got, and and this is another one, another one that stuck with me over, over 30 years is everyone in a company wants to feel valued and wants to feel that what they're doing is valuable. 
Yeah. And I, and I try to, you know, and it, it certainly resonates with me personally that if you don't feel valued and you don't feel what you're doing is valuable, you'll be looking for another job or you won't be very good at the job you're in. Right. I try to keep that in mind and it, it reinforces the role of leaders to be inspirational. Agreed. And again, this is lessons that work for me that at least is partly generally applicable, but I think leaders and managers are different. I think good leaders are also effective managers, but managing is necessary, not sufficient for leadership. And it's the inspiration piece, which is, is essential. And I look back over my series of managers and bosses over, over 30 years, the inspirational ones always stand out. Right. Right. So there's, you know, a lot of discussion around younger people in the workforce today and, and Gen X versus Gen Y and versus Gen Z and, and the need for meaning in work. And to me, it, it's gen independent. Everybody needs to feel meaning in work. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Because if there's no value on the other side of that, it's just, what's the point? Yeah. Just a waste of time, it sounds like. Well, you can do it, and you can do it for a period of time, and you can be effective for a period of time. But in you know, in terms of keeping great people in your organization and building followership and getting people to engage beyond the day-to-day task, you know, and I personally believe this and feel this way that there needs to be some higher calling. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about your current role and why that role now is important to the future of the industry. So Technip FMC's surface business, just, just to give some background, is engaged in drilling and completion and pressure control in conventional land, shale, and shallow water. So that's the portion of the market we serve. If you look at total hydrocarbon supply today, something between 70 and 80% of total supply comes from the markets we serve. So in, in terms of continuity of supply and adequate, adequacy of supply and cost effectiveness of hydrocarbon supply, we that that portion of the market is absolutely essential. So the second part I would say is given that we are the majority of hydrocarbon supply and, and those those three segments that I mentioned, so conventional land, unconventionals, and shallow water. And given the importance of greenhouse gas reduction and carbon intensity reduction, we are essential to helping oil and gas improve its carbon intensity. So if you just if you just look at the gigatons of greenhouse gas produced in oil and gas globally and segment it down to the portion coming from from land and shallow water, that, that is the overwhelming majority of greenhouse gases. If we can be effective in materially improving the carbon intensity of hydrocarbons coming out of those spaces, 
mm-hmm. we will make a material move in limiting global warming to pick the metric you want, you know, two degrees by 2050, a degree and a half by 2030, whatever number it is, we can be a significant part of the pathway to getting there. Good deal. Yeah. On the way. And I, to the industry's credit, and I, and I probably wouldn't have said this 10 years ago, the industry is now fully recognizing that carbon intensity is part of the answer. Yeah. And for those people that don't know what carbon intensity is, could you explain a little further? Essentially, what we do is we look at any process and the emissions coming from that process. Right. And we include in that calculation the emissions associated with the manufacturing of our products, the installation of our products, and the use of our products. So all of the emissions then that an operator will experience, and we reduce all of that to carbon dioxide equivalent. Gotcha. And the simplest way to think of it is if you have a process which is producing unburned methane, you have a significantly higher CO2 equivalent than an equivalent amount of carbon dioxide just because the global warming potential of methane is so much higher than CO2. Right. So anyway, so that that becomes the numerator. So if I am producing a barrel of oil, I look at the kilograms of emissions across all of the activities that went into the production of the barrel of oil. And I get a I get basically a numerator which says CO2 equivalent measured in weight divided by some volume of output, which we reduce to barrel of oil equivalent, just so you can look at resources across type. Okay. So that, yeah. that's a, sorry for that, sorry for that walk down nerd lane, but that's when I talk about carbon intensity, it's, that's it. It's just, it's a numerator of carbon divided by a denominator of output. Gotcha. 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 So. If you look at shale today, and depending on what source you want to look at, it'll be something like 60 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per barrel of oil equivalent is is the current state of shale carbon intensity. Mm-hmm. And I think all of the operators, at least the forward-looking ones and, and the ones that expect to be around over a long period of time, are viewing carbon reduction in carbon intensity as a prerequisite for staying in business. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen, I've read a lot of articles about everybody's new plan. I mean, I guess they've had time to sit down and really tackle what they're going to do in the, in the future to tackle this issue. So, you know, let's take care of our environment the best we can for sure. Absolutely. And it takes a commitment from the operators and it takes support from the suppliers to bring different solutions to the operators, which have meaningful impact on carbon intensity. Right. So it's it's back to it's back to that view of of macro energy supply that says hydrocarbons are going to have a place in energy supply for multiple decades. Therefore, the industry needs to reduce the carbon intensity of those hydrocarbons supplied 
so the world gets the energy it needs and we make a dent in in the growth of global warming. So they, to me, those, those are not incompatible. It's all part of a higher calling of the industry, which says, how do we bring adequate and cost-effective energy supply, but how do we do it in a way which minimizes the environmental impact? Right, right. Hey, Barry. Hey. Do you listen to podcasts? Not often. Okay, what's your favorite one? I don't have, I'm sorry to admit this, I don't have a favorite one. I, the only time I listen to podcasts is is when I go to the gym with my with my oldest daughter, uh-huh. and and she gives me whatever latest podcast she's listening to as a, as a way to try to make me smarter. Well, that's cool. Yeah, well, I mean, you get a little bit of everything that way. <laughs> I do. <laughs> well, and those that don't know, y'all are actually the uh, sponsors of the Oil and Gas Onshore podcast with Justin Gaucher. So make sure everybody goes to check that out. I did know that, but I thought that would just be absolutely, absolutely <laughs> that's okay I'm, for me to lay claim to that it. one. So yeah, when all else yeah, goes, go with the truth. <laughs> I'm plugging it for you. you Plus, Appreciate obviously, that. I've had Justin on. He's a wonderful colleague. He's kind of my competition. We run neck and neck in numbers and downloads and stuff. So it's a good little bit of fun. Well, I so apologize to him for me not being a a listener just yet. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's not a problem. So Barry, if people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about Technique FMC, how might they go about doing that? You know, we as a company, I think, have a really good website. So technipfmc.com. That's a great starting point. And for people that want to reach out to me, I would say email or LinkedIn. All right, so that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Now here's Events on Deck. Hey everybody, Alex here with the Events on Deck. So due to current circumstances, of course, we are not able to have any in-person events. So I have nothing of that nature to update you guys on. But we have been hosting some virtual events. So OGGN is wanting to offer free webinars, live happy hours, etc. during this time. Since these events are not scheduled out as far in advance as in-person events, we would like to keep you guys updated via Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So be sure to keep checking up on that and we'll keep you guys posted on anything we're offering. It has been free. We want to offer you guys value during this time that we're all at home. So please continue checking in and joining us for these virtual events. We are looking forward to seeing you guys whenever we're able to have in-person events and hope you're staying safe and sound. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.